0: Alright, well, good evening everyone. I'm really glad to be here. My name is Tim Reese, as, as was mentioned. I am, I am really excited to be here at the first uh, Teen Devo of the, of the school year. Um, kicking off, what, what is it you guys are calling it? Teen Takeover Month, right? Be doing some awesome things. It's a new year for the Teen Ministry. You guys are going to have to update your slides. I see some uh, guys that aren't around anymore. They've graduated and moved on. We're going to have to get some new pictures up there. Let's go! Let's get the new guys in the pictures it's going to be awesome now, I, I love the teen ministry. Um, I have a son he's thirteen. You know when I think about my life i I, I became a christian at age thirty six and uh, you know i'm grateful that God intervened at that time in my life, but you know that was some time ago and, and I still struggle with the consequences and baggage that 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 came along with the sin that i that i lived in prior to becoming a disciple and you know God forgives me of my sin, but some of the residual effects still remain, you know, and uh, you know, like I said, I'm really grateful to, to have had the opportunity to, to begin a life following God. But when I think about you guys in the teens and, and the opportunity that you have and, and, and when I think about my son and, and the, the 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 awful things that you can save yourselves from um, by beginning this walk early. And when I think about all the work that goes into the teen ministry, the, the, the leaders, the teen workers, the volunteers, the teens themselves that are helping my son stay faithful and, and, and be a disciple, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm be, I, it's beyond words. I can't describe how much I love you guys and, and thank so much of you. You know, Jeff asked me to do a lesson on the treasure principle and, and how it might be applicable to teens and, and, and those parenting teens. And it's been a little bit of a struggle preparing it um, for a couple reasons. One, what else is there to be said? You know, we've been working on this for a couple of months and it's been fantastic. I don't know about what you guys have done necessarily in the peninsula or on tide, in Tidewater. I'm sure it's been great. Here in Coastal, we've had these amazing lessons from Ed, from our elders. Uh, Leslie Millette came and, and gave a, a lesson to, our, to the sisters. Um, we've had testimonies from the brothers. We spent a lot of time in D groups. We've been confessing. We've been making uh, plans and commitments. We've been getting open with each other. It's been amazing, um, but you know, I don't know what else I have to add to that, <laughs> right? So, so I'm a little daunted by that. And then also, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm somebody that relates well. To teens, you know, or, or any young people for that matter. So, um, you know, and I take that, I'm not one of these guys that says, oh, you know, kids today, they, they're, they you know, I take that on. That's my problem, right, that I, that I, that I struggle. Um, and I also have to confess, well, it's not really a confess, I'm going to call you guys out. You know, I've, 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 I've given a couple of lessons to the congregation, and sometimes when I look over at the teens... <laughs> Not I expect them to be distracted. All right, I get that. But every once in a while, I'll see one of them. And, and again, that's on me. Right? I should be I should be you know conducting a lesson in a way. One time, and I won't mention any names. One time, I saw one of the teen workers. <laughs> it, hey, it was a midweek. I'm, we're all tired at midweek. I get it. Right. Um, so so teens, if you see me like purposely looking over here the whole time. It's not because I don't love you, it's just I'm afraid I'm gonna see something that's gonna feed my insecurities if I look over at you. So, so bear with me. So let's just, let's just dive into this, all right? Uh, we'll try to make it a little interactive to keep people engaged, right? So let's start with the parents. I'm gonna ask some questions. By the raising of your hand, how many of you wish you had had more spiritual training when you were young concerning money? All right. Almost almost to a person. <laughs> Putting spiritual things aside, how many of you wish you had had just some practical training in finances when you were young, right? Everybody raises their hand, right? No. Now, maybe get a little deeper. How many of you have struggled with the decision of, should I pay off, should I pay my creditors, or should I give to the church, or give to God, or give to someone, right? Yeah. A lot, us, a lot of us struggle with that. It's not always clear what to do, right? How many of you married folk have had a fight or an argument uh, with your spouse in the last 12 months over money? I had to, I had to make sure my wife raised her hand. So, so kind of, you know, the reason I bring this up and, and, and the reason I bring it up in a, in a teen lesson is because... Every adult that I've taken time to get to know and talk to has had some kind of an issue with finance, all right? And it falls on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you might have somebody that, you know, for whatever reason, just always kind of had it on straight, from a worldly point of view at least, with money. And they're not struggling. You know, they're not in debt. They're not – they haven't made a lot of mistakes. But, but, they, but, they're, but, but they're, hey, I've got it on straight. Leave me alone. It's none of your business. I got this. I, I, I give. Leave me alone. You don't need to see this. So there's a little bit of greed. There's a little bit of uh, closeness there. And then the other end of the spectrum are, are, are the folks that just are struggling, right? They, they, they don't know how to manage their money. They, they've made mistakes. They don't, one mistake leads to another. There's debt. There's, there's mismanagement. But every adult that I know in the church, outside of the church, if I get to know them, there's these issues. And what I want to tell the teens is that, you know, the world tells you that the best way to learn is through experience. They say, you know what, experience is the greatest teacher, right? And they'll say, uh, you know, the way, to, the way to grow is to learn from your mistakes. And they'll say, um, uh, you know, fall down and get back up. That's how you make it through life. That, that's the way to go. And, you know, sometimes I even hear people that I really respect, and sometimes even people, you know, other Christians, and I know they mean well, and, and on some level they're probably right, but you'll see a younger person, maybe even somebody in their early 20s, kind of going in the wrong direction, and we'll say, ah, well, they know better, but they got to work this out on their own, you know, and... Oh, yeah, he's, he's going, he knows better than to do that, but but he's got to learn from his own mistakes. And, and I, don't, I don't doubt that experience is a great teacher. It most certainly is. And, and we should learn from our mistakes. Um, and God most certainly allows for repentance. But I don't find a lot of evidence in the Bible that indicates to me that that's how God wants me to learn. All right? If you go to Proverbs 9, verse 10, you can just write it down. I will say this, teens. Um, if you if, you're having, if you if you at least just write down the scriptures that we go to um, tonight, you know, go back to them. They're powerful. They're, they're wisdom. Uh, but in nine Proverbs nine ten, what does it say? It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, so what is the beginning of wisdom? Experience? No. Fear of the Lord. Learning from your mistakes is that what brings understanding? No. It's knowledge of the Holy One, you know. And if, if 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 we bounce over to Proverbs two, you'll see. I'll just read the first little bit here. Um, once my, yeah, there we go. All right. So in Proverbs two verse one, it says, "My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed." If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield for those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. You know the father here that, that 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 he's he's imploring his son his son he's begging his son don't go the way of experience you don't have to screw up you don't have to you don't have to go the way of Ecclesiastes interesting the same writer right it's but, but two different tracks you know one is saying get wisdom now learn from me learn from God you know the other tract is you know we know what happens in Ecclesiastes he, he, he does everything. Rather, with abandon, finds out only later that he gets wisdom. But here in Proverbs, he's telling his son or daughter, you can get wise now. Seek after God. You know, and kind of back to parents. You guys are all, I kind of envisioned you being separated. But anyway, parents, you know, this is an amazing age of opportunity for us. This is the teen years. Not only is it an amazing opportunity, but... We're kind of in the final stretch here, right? Your your kids are on their way out. You know, some of you in here have already had teens leave, and you're like, "Wait a second! I, I forgot this. I didn't tell them that. I, I I need them to come back so I can can have this." You know, we have to take advantage of the time uh, that's here, and I'd I'd like to direct us to the book of Deuteronomy to kind of talk about parenting, and in in chapter six, you know, I. I, I love Deuteronomy 6, and, and, I, and I hate to read, it's, it's almost, it, it, I, I hate to read just sections of it. It, it. it feels like something that must always be read in its entirety. It's so awesome. Yeah. But, but we're just going to read in chapter 6, in verses 6 through 8. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Very familiar passage. We've heard it a lot. We'll hear it a lot more, and we should hear it often. God speaking through Moses is kind of the same thing that Solomon was trying to do in Proverbs. He's saying, I want you to have a great life. I want you to have the blessings that I have in store for you. The way to get to those is follow the commands that I've given you. You've got to eat. You know, if you, I, I, you know, I'm going to try a couple times throughout the lesson to relate to the teens. It's going to be really awkward. But you know, when I was young, if you were training for a sport, you know, I'm going to eat, drink, and sleep football or, or whatever. I was a wrestler, so you couldn't really say that because wrestlers don't eat. But you know, I'm going to eat, sleep, and drink baseball. You know, you know, God is saying, you know, I want you to eat, sleep, and drink these commands. You need to learn these things. And parents... You know, we have to impress them on our children. And I think it's unique with teens. You know, every parent has, has, been, has been admonished and told, you know, it's not what you tell them, it's what, it's what they see you do that counts, right? We all know that. We've all heard that. I think that when our kids get to the teens, it's not even so much what they watch us do, but just the way they live with us. You know, I, I think about the things I learned from... You know, my dad... My dad was a great guy, and I learned a lot from him, but I don't remember him ever sitting me down and saying, Here, son, I want to show you how to do this. You know, or hey son, watch me, I'm gonna show you how to do this. It was, hey son, get out in the yard, I need help. <laughs> get out and get out, I need you to stack this wood. And it was just the life that we led that left an impression on me. It wasn't so much what he said or even what I observed him do, it was what I did with him that left the impression. On me, and, and this passage says that we need to leave impressions on our kids. And when it comes to being disciples, and, and and that includes our money, you know, we have to be modeling what we say to our teens, to our kids. We have to be we have to be modeling patience. We have to be modeling uh, humility, righteousness. And we have to be mon- modeling sacrifice. We have to be modeling generosity. We have to be modeling an outward focus with our money. Because if we're telling our kids that we're disciples and we're not modeling these things, what we're modeling is hypocrisy. Right? And they're very good at picking that up. They'll tell you, you know, right off the bat. You know, they know what we really value by what they see us spend our money on, and what they see us spend our time on, what they see us making sacrifices for. You know, we as parents, we need to examine ourselves. We need to repent where necessary. And then we need to turn and make impressions on our kids. Amen? Amen. So kind of back to the teens. So that, that was just the introduction. You still with me? Yes. Okay. yes. All right. Nobody's sleeping. I'm looking. I'm being bold. I'm looking. You guys are awake. I really appreciate that. Um, the, the, the overarching point or title or, or theme of the lesson today is authenticity. All right? Who here, which teens just want to raise your hand and, and define authentic for me or give me a word that is like authentic. What does it mean to be authentic? On, you guys are going to start school soon. You need to know these things. <laughs> <laughs> Rudolph. Say that again. Sacred. Sacred, he says. I saw a hand up over here. Uh, I can say real. real. I like that. Amen. Anybody? Yeah. Genuine. Genuine. Very good. Very Say that again. Original. Original. Okay. Very good. Alright. Yeah, yeah it, it's real. It's like, you know, you're the same through and through. You know, when we think of, uh, you know, if you're an authentic competitor tonight and you, you pulled out that jal, jalapeno and you ha, you bit into it, right? That's an authentic competitor. A not-so-authentic competitor kind of nibbled on it like a rabbit and you know, a carrot, right? <laughs> All right. So while we're while we're defining things, who who can tell me what would be the opposite? What would be an antonym of authentic? What would be the opposite of authentic? Somebody raise their hand and tell me. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Ooh, good. Hey. Counterfeit. Counterfeit. Whoa, that's a big word. Aaron. <laughs> Fake. Yeah. Right. All right. Here's one of those awkward moments where I try to relate to you. Do you guys, do you guys ever use the word? Does anybody use the word poser anymore? No, yeah? Yeah, Yeah, some of these, some of these semi-young folks know poser, used to be young. So, so when I was a kid, so when I was a kid, one of the worst things you could be called was a poser, at least that wasn't profanity. You could just, the the worst clean word that they could use on you was poser. With guys, it was usually, you're trying to be a tough guy. Guys, when I was growing up, we were always acting like we were tough and we could fight and, if you you know, half these guys, myself included, you get to talking to them, you realize, hey, you've never, you never actually been in a fight, have you? <laughs> no. Yeah. but I've seen fights on TV. <laughs> but do you, do you lift weights? Do you train with a bag or anything? Well, no, no. See, so you're a poser, right? You're acting like you're something that you're not. You know, and I want to, I want to, I want to look at a scripture that, that, that may not jump out at you right away. As, as sort of uh, illustrating this point, but but we'll get to it. So go over to 1 Timothy. And we'll go to uh, chapter 3. And... I'm just going to read this. Um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So, you know, simple context here. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He's encouraging him to appoint elders and he he lays out... Elders or overseers, we call them elders, it, he lays out qualifications for them. And we, we all, we all kind of get these, they, they make sense, right? Above reproach, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach, right? We all, we all understand that, those, those make sense, right? And, and if we think about it, you know, these aren't really just characteristics of elders, these are, these are things we should all be aspiring to, right? We should all be respectable, we should all have self-control, right? These are, these are things that we should all be kind of convicted about but in in verse 7 it says something that, that, that has that from time to time will trip me up and it says it says he must have a good reputation with outsiders and and a, a, maybe a better greek translation would be he, re, he he gets a good report from outsiders right so so in other, in other words outsiders say good things about this elders candidate right now the reason i get tripped up about that is because when i became a christian i was told well, you know, outsiders are going to hate you. you know, they're going to think you're weird. They're going to they're persecute you. And if they do, that's good. That means you're doing it right, right. If they speak well of you, then woe unto you, because that's how they spoke about the false prophets. right? So why is it that Paul all of a sudden is, is, is interested in what outsiders might have to say? Anybody got a guess? Anybody have any ideas from the teens? There we go. Uh, good good answer yep that's right yep anything else because, um, if a person who's not like really well known is someone who's nice and stuff people won't come to the church they'll be like oh hey that guy's leading the church I don't want to go there <laughs> <laughs> very good yeah it's bad advertising right it doesn't it doesn't bode well in getting visitors right? I think you know most of us adults have been convicted by that at one time or another right it's like oh, you're you're a Christian? <laughs> all right, yeah. Uh, we're supposed to be representations of Jesus, and that's how we're actually forcing us to that. Yeah, yeah. That's a great <laughs> answer. These are all great answers. Um, and, and, they're, and I think they're correct, but I think there's something else that, that really pertains here, and that's this. So let's, we have elders here in our church, so I thought he might be here, but it's good that he's not, so I can pick on him. But Chris <laughs> Hurst is an elder, right? Chris Hurst is is an elder. He's also somebody that I consider to be a very good friend. uh, Chris baptized me, studied the Bible with me ten years ago. So he he plays a he's a significant character right in my story. I think the world of him right, Um, and I see him at church every Sunday. I see him every midweek. I see him at breakfast every so often. We 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 have some social engagement outside of church, but truth be told. I have no evidence whatsoever of how he behaves at work. I would bet that he's a pretty upstanding guy, but I don't know. I don't see him, right? I have no idea how he handles his finances, right? His banker would know, right? But I don't know, right? I would trust that he does well. But I think what Paul's saying here is, hey, guys, we don't want people that play church really well and have you all fooled. Getting, getting held up as elders. We need to hear what the pagans have to say too, right? And just to be clear, he doesn't care whether the pagans like you or not, right? So like if I went to, uh, here's my man Matthew Miles. Out there. Matt, Matt Miles works at Sonic. He, he's got a job, right? He's a man. He's a man. So if I go to Sonic to find out what the outsiders think of him, and I walk in and say, hey, you know Matt Miles? And they say, yeah, he's that weird Christian guy. We don't like him very well alright that doesn't deter me right, right. like you, you, were we talking about the same guy mom, yeah he's the guy that won't work on Friday nights because he goes to Team Diva we, we really don't like that you know I don't like that about him mm-hmm. you know and I said, well, what about well does he show up on time well you know I think he does I think he does show up on time so well, does he does he do what he's told does he work hard yeah he does he makes, it look, makes the rest of us look bad you know we don't <laughs> like him for that either you know but that's a good report among outsiders. Not, we love Matt, he's super cool and we want to hang out with him. That's not what we're looking for. But that's the kind of good report. But my point is, whether you're trying to become an elder, which none of you guys are, but or if you're just trying to be an authentic disciple, you've know, you got to be the same through and through. None of us would want to be accused of having a double life. And I think that's probably something you teens can relate to a lot. You know, you go to school, there's, this, there's these pressures, you've got friends that aren't Christians, and, you know, you're, you're, you're working with all that. But we have to take that down to the level of money as well. Right? And, and the reason I kind of really want to drive this home is that money, whether you're a teen or an adult, whether you've got one dollar or a million dollars, money is... Super easy to hide. All right, husbands hide it from their wives. Wives hide it from their husbands, even though they're working on the same checking account. You know, they get the same credit card statement. You know, they they're not always unified. They don't always know what the other one is doing. You know, teens. You know, even though even you guys that have jobs and and, and even though you got great parents that are probably hovering over you all the time, you know. That mom doesn't know exactly how much you got paid on Friday, right? You, you know that she doesn't know exactly what you've got stuffed in your sock drawer, right? And that's something you're going to fight with your entire life. It's very easy to be deceptive with money. Um, but you, you can't separate money from your spiritual life. You can't do it. You're going to be tempted to. You're going to think it's okay. You're going to think that's what people just do. But it's not right. You can't do it. You know, God doesn't—he doesn't need your money, but he does watch what you do with it because it reveals your heart to him, right? You know, and we can't—and kind of a practical for, for teens—you uh, uh, you can't wait until the basket comes by to to say, "Oh, oh, I don't have anything." You know, I'm off the hook, right? Um, or I brought a quarter. You know, I mean, you got to be deliberate You got to be deliberate about this. You got and, and and yeah, I know you may not have a lot now, and this may be somewhat insignificant from a pure dollars and cents point of view. But you got to start training yourself now. You got to start thinking about how you're going to serve God with your money, because when money passes through your hands, you have an opportunity to do something tangible in your worship to God. You have an opportunity to worship Him with something other than your words. Other than the way you follow the rules that the teen leaders and your parents set for you. You have an opportunity to do something on your own that can make you be authentic. Right? Just kind of close out here slowly. Um, I've got five, five characteristics. This would be a great thing if you had like a slideshow. This would go, go great on slides. But five... Five characteristics of an authentic steward of God's mind, right? So, you know, or God's resources, rather. You know, Everything we have comes from God, right? We, we get that. And, and it's incumbent upon us to both, A, manage it in a way that, that is appropriate and pleasing to Him, and, and B, disperse it in a way that brings glory to Him, right? So the first characteristic of an authentic steward is you're industrious. Right? Now, industrious, I think, can loosely be defined as hardworking and effective, right? So I have people that work for me on my job, and sometimes I'll catch them slacking off, and I'll say, hey, come on, let's get to work. And they'll be like, oh, man, Tim, do you want me to work smart, or do you want me to work hard? And I'll be like, I want you to do both, right? I want you to figure out a smart way to do it, and then do it harder than you are now, right? Let's go to Acts chapter 18, <clears throat> And we're going to read in verse 1, uh, 1 through 3. This is, uh, this is the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 1. after this, Paul left Athens, and he, went out, and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. You know, Paul... Paul knew how to sew tents together. It's strange, right? I mean, Paul was a scholar. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was—you uh, know—we get the impression from reading about Paul that, at the very least, he was academically privileged, yeah. right? He—he he, was—he was very uh, good at rhetoric. We know from 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 reading the things that he has said, and the things that he, had, that he had written. We know from the Bible that he studied under Gamaliel, which was this. Uh, uh, renowned uh, rabbi. This guy had prospects, right? And he was on this great path. And of course, we know that he met Jesus, became a Christian, but, but somewhere prior to that, somebody taught him how to sew tents together, of all things, right? Who did that? Probably his dad, right? All right? There, there's, a, there's an old Jewish proverb. I don't know if it would have been in use at this time, but, but it's, 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 it's good nonetheless. It says, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. Right. It, it, Jewish people are and always have been incredibly practical. Right? If you know any Jewish folks, they, they're, they're, they're very practical, they're very industrious, they're very hardworking. That's why they have such great senses of humor. They can just break things down to the most practical level and then turn it on you in a, in a funny, sarcastic way. But, you know, Paul was raised in a culture that valued hard work. And Jesus would have been raised in that culture that, that, that uh, valued hard work. Um, we need to have a culture that values hard work. And, and teens, you need to contribute to that willingly and, and, and with a lot of energy and enthusiasm in a way that makes your parents' life a joy and not a, and not a chore, right? Let's look at another passage on, on industriousness and work. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians. Thank you. In verse, excuse me, in chapter three, we'll start in verse six. <clears throat> so this is Paul talking to the church in Thessalonica. Thessal, Thessal, says, "In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us." Right. You, know, you know, teens, train yourselves to work, right? Whether you've got a job or not, and, and if you don't have a job, I'm not even necessarily telling you that you should go get a job. I think that's something every, every teen should work out with their parents, think, think about it, get advice, pray, consider your circumstances. But whether you have a job or not, there's plenty of work to do, right? There, you're going to have homework, Right? That you can work hard at. There's chores that you can be doing. You need to learn how to throw yourselves into it. I've never met an adult, not one, who regrets working hard when they were younger. In fact, what you usually get when you listen to adults is they, they they brag about how hard their life was. You know, my dad made me do this, and then, you know, I, I had the I remember I had to stack wood on Thanksgiving morning one time. That's one of my favorite sob stories. Well, that's how bad my life was. I didn't even get to you know, but you you're going to want to have those stories when you get older. There's pride in work. All right, train yourself to work. Nobody is too spiritual to work. Yeah. Nobody is too smart to work. Right? I used to think when I was young that if I, if I developed, if I got some great education or some great skill or some great wisdom, that I could just get by on that. I can tell you, I fire people on a semi regular basis who are extremely smart but will not work. You have got to learn to work. Second uh, characteristic of an authentic steward able to delay gratification. Come on. We used to talk about this a lot when I was younger. I don't know if they still do. In the 60s, they, this guy in Stan, at Stanford University, he does a study, right? He gets a bunch of kids, probably I think around four or five years old. He puts them each in a separate room, sets them at a table, and he puts a marshmallow on the table. Now, you guys all know this, right? I, if, you, if, you, if you eat the marshmallow, good, but if you wait till I come back to eat the marshmallow, I'll give you another one, you'll get two marshmallows, right? So, if you can delay gratification, you'll be rewarded with an extra marshmallow. Well, the interesting thing is he followed these kids, right, for for decades, right? And almost without exception, those that could delay gratification and wait for that second uh, marshmallow, (laughs) they had better SAT scores, they were less likely to get involved in drugs, they had less issues with obesity, they were better at handling stress, And they had better social skills. And I was reading an article about this, and one of the quotes I thought was just amazing. It said, success usually comes down to choosing pain, excuse me, choosing the pain of discipline over the ease of distraction. All right? And and teens, you get you get the opportunity to do this every day when you come home. I, I, I my son's not here he's visiting his relatives but every night he comes home and whatever he's had to do you know whatever extra curricular activity it's over and he's home. And he's got a backpack full of homework, right? That has to get done. Now he can choose the pain of doing it right now, right? Or he can choose the distraction of turning the TV on, right? And 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 easing himself with that, right, and decompressing. You know, but what happens, right? If he chooses to do the homework right away and finishes it, and then he turns the TV on, and his mom comes in and says, is your homework done? And he can say, yes, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. It's really awesome, isn't it? <laughs> but, but, but if he chooses the ease of distraction over the discipline, of, of, uh, over the pain of discipline, and he watches TV first, thinking he's going to do his homework later. You know, then he has to deal with, is your homework done? Yeah. Well... Well, this one assignment's not due till Friday, and so so I don't really have to do that. And then there's this one, but this is one thing and I'm gonna have time to work on it tomorrow in class, so I'll probably get it done then. And then there's the other thing, but I'm gonna get up early tomorrow and, and work on that. So so there's all that angst. That's angst. That is pain on the back end. I would much rather work hard up front than deal with all that nonsense. Not to mention the fact that the half hour you said you were gonna watch TV turns into an hour, turns into an hour. So, look, nobody, nobody is so put together that they can flirt with the ease of distraction without suffering from it. Discipline means you choose the hard thing first, right? It's going to yield great things in your life. When you become an adult, if you have not learned to delay gratification, two big things happen to you when it comes to money. Let's go to Proverbs 21. Thank you, thank you. Proverbs 21, verse 5. It says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. All right, parents, how many of you have ever bought something and immediately regretted it? All right. You know, the world calls that impulse buying. People make a ton of money off you guys on that impulse buying thing. You know, we have to be able to delay gratification. We don't just do what we want immediately when we want it. We have to be able to wait. We have to be able to think. We have to have self-control. You know, other places in the Bible talk. You don't really see delayed gratification in the Bible, but you see self-control everywhere, right? One other, while we're in Proverbs, let's pop over to 22. The other an even more painful adult consequence for not being able to delay gratification. Come on. In verse 7 of chapter 22, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Yeah. Right? How many parents have borrowed money and wish they hadn't borrowed the money? Right? Whatever it was you bought with that money, quickly, the the, the shininess wears off really quick, but the debt... Debt's the gift that keeps on giving. Right? It's always going to be there for you. Right? And and I could talk for days on debt. That's not. We're not going to do that right here. I'm not saying debt's bad, but but again, you have to be diligent. You have to be self controlled. You have to think things through. You have to be wise, and you have to be authentic, or you'll get yourselves in trouble. Third. Oh, one before I move on, parents, you can help your kids with this. Right? Your parents. Your kids are often coming to you with, "I want this," yeah. right? and oftentimes we think the answer needs to be yes or no. Yeah, I'll just confess right now. I'm, I'm I'm sentimental with my with. I'm not sentimental with anybody except my youngest son. I wasn't sentimental with his older brother, but yeah, I want for and it's this is this is sinful. It's wrong, but I want to give him the stuff that he wants, right? Yeah. You know. So for me, I want to say yes. You know and In other situations, we want to say no, but sometimes the best answer is not now, right? Not now. That's not a bad idea, but not now, all right? How about your birthday or Christmas, whichever one's later, (laughs) right? (laughs) How how about, how about, how about, why don't you save up your money and buy it yourself? That's an amazing teaching for our kids. What a great thing that we can do for our kids and for ourselves, right? You know, we can walk away with some self respect <laughs> after the interaction, right? So, anyway, thank you for letting me back up. Let's, number three characteristic of an authentic steward, outward focused with their resources. Let's go to James. It'll be in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, um, says in verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, there's all kinds of things we talk about that go into our religion, right? You know, we, our, our doctrine and our, 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 our practices and the way we meet together and the, our repentance and confession. But, you know, James boils it down to this. Look after the orphans and widows. And I'm sure the orphans and widows of his time needed a lot of things. But one of those things was money. All right? He was telling them, give your money to take care of these folks that are less fortunate than you. That's what God sees. That's what he honors. Let's uh, stick with James and pop over to chapter 2. We'll go to verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action. Is dead. You know, we, we all everybody knows this: the faith and the works. And you got to have faith, and you got to have works. But I don't know that we often notice that the works that he specifically refers to is helping somebody out materially, right? Caring for someone else, right? One last scripture here that I think is really important to look at is in First John. Now, I don't know, but I think everybody has sort of these impressions of, of the writers of the Bible. We form these mental pictures of them in, in our heads, and sometimes for no good reason, right? You know, for me, I always tend to—I love reading John's works. I think he was awesome, but I always think of him as kind of a sappy guy, right? He's always talking about love, and, and uh, you know, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, and, you know, the new command, you know, love is the command, blah, 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 you know, but— I, Great, as far as that goes. But, but in chapter 3 of First of John, if you, go to, if you go to verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our... laid down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We all know up to that point. Everybody knows that one, right? But then verse 17, he illustrates himself. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So, you know, from my perspective, here we got the sappy, lovey-dovey disciple, but he boils it down to, are you helping out your brother or not? Are you meeting the needs or not? Are you outward focused? Are you authentic? Is your love just with words, or is it with deeds as well? All right, fourth. We're getting close. You guys are doing great. I'm really impressed. Fourth characteristic of an authentic steward, contentedness. All right? 1 Timothy six six. You don't have to turn there, but it's a it's a memory scripture. You know, con, uh, godliness with contentedness is great gain. Right? That's exactly the opposite of what the world tells you. You want to ruin your career? Tell your boss that you're content. All right. The world says no, 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 no. You got to be hungry. You got to be wanting to go out and get yours. Right? You got to want more. You know, I, I tell this story sometimes. I used to work for a company that that had a a, a branch sales network and, and they would they would they would loan money, right? And if you got hired into that job, your entry level position was you were a loan officer. You would call people up and you would say, Hey, you want to refinance your mortgage? Hey, do you want to consolidate your debts? Whatever, right? These guys can make a lot of money on commission. And when when these branch managers would uh, would would get a new candidate in that looked like he had promise, right? and somebody they wanted to keep, somebody they wanted to groom, they would encourage him to go buy a car. Yeah, you don't want to drive that car anymore. You're, you're a high roller, man. You need to get a nice car. So you go out and you buy your car, you come back, and you got your car payment. Now all of a sudden, you're hungry. Right? I got to make that next sale. right? That's how the world works. That's how the world manipulates you. The world is going to play you like crazy if you're not content. If you can't establish contentedness. All right, let's go to uh, Hebrews 13. We'll look at one other scripture in this in this section here. All right, Hebrews 13, verse five. says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Come on. You know, contentedness is a a spiritual discipline, right? And it, and it, it is you know, here's the deal. I've never met a discontented person who was joyful. I've never met a discontented person who was genuinely grateful, right? You know, teens when your mom says, hey, I'm really grateful for the way you Picked your clothes up off the floor. But I'd really be happy if you actually put them in the hamper instead of on your bed. It doesn't seem like gratitude, does it? Right? Thanks, but. Right? It's discontent. They're not content with you. You don't get the gratitude. It doesn't come through. right? You know, I don't meet too many discontented people that are truly humble. You know, it takes a certain degree of arrogance to walk around thinking you deserve more than you have. You know, it's just a fact. And here's why this is important if you want to be a good steward, an authentic steward of God's resources. When you're content, you're going to be able to spend less time thinking about what you want and more time thinking about what God wants. More time thinking, Less time thinking about what you're going to get yourself with your money because you deserve it and more time thinking about how you can glorify God with the money that He's given you, by the way. Right? Final characteristic. Uh, you guys, I can't believe it. We're, we're almost done. I'm, I, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll just speak, ad-lib a little longer when we're done. Oh, awesome. But uh, the fifth characteristic of an authentic steward is purposefulness. Right? Go to Ephesians 2. We, everybody should have all of Ephesians memorized. By exactly. Now, right? Uh, <laughs> But one of my favorite passages out of, out, of, out of Ephesians, I love practical teaching, right? And in verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not randomly saved. Come on. All right? We're not, you know, God loves us, yes, but he didn't save us just so that we could be fired up about being loved. Right? He saved us to work. He saved us to do things. And that includes doing things with our money. You know, Don't think that God doesn't have a plan for your money. You know, Don't think that God isn't interested in what you're doing with your money. It is, it is, a, it is, it is something that's very important to him. And, and on this topic, we'll look at one last scripture, and then we'll start to close out. Let's go to the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 12. We'll start in verse 29. This is Jesus speaking, again, another very familiar passage. We're going to look at it in terms of purposefulness, right? Right. He says, And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, what greater purpose could you have for your money than to use it in such a way that it points your heart towards heaven? Amen. What could be more important than that? What could be more important than pleasing God with the way you spend your money, the way you give your money, the way you manage your money, the way you think about your money? Do you believe these passages when they make these promises? And are you going to live your life as if you believe them? You know, when money comes into your hand, team, whether it's a paycheck or whether it's a dollar you found on the floor that somebody dropped, however you come across it, You know, is your first thought, how much, how can I give from this? Or is your first thought, what can I get with this? It's revealing. It reveals your authenticity. You know, being authentic is hard. It requires discipline. It would be much easier to just shift your values as circumstances change. You know, Jesus is looking for disciples that are willing to walk the hard road. You know, crosses are heavy and and uncomfortable. They were designed that way. Right? And I encourage you guys, all of us, and maybe parents too, if if the encouragement is is useful to you, you know, be authentic with your money, with the way you live out your discipleship from a financial point of view. You learn the discipline and the joy and the freedom of godly stewardship. Before teens... Learn this before your treasures become large enough to overtake your heart and steer it away from heaven. Thank you very much.